questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Tonight's special guest has lived his entire life amongst the aliens and will give us a view into this world. A world of alien visitation, abduction, and the unexplained. It is their culmination of 59 years of experience with ETs and other life forms. We'll dive straight into the heart of the alien agenda. Many of you ask for more on this topic, and this is for you. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, and more. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, Rebounders, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. Tonight's special guest is Dave Emmons, who graduated from high school, college, and was also in the U.S. Army from 1968 to 1971, where he held a top-secret clearance. But his body is so diverse that it'll let him tell us himself. From electrician, musician, radio host, restaurant and nightclub owner, and a UFO and ET experiencer since he was 14 years of age to the present day. He has had five close encounters with UFOs and several abductions. And to tell us more, from the state of Illinois, Dave Emmons is our guest today. Hello, Dave, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you, Mel, so much, and uh, that was a great intro. So I decided not to read your bio fully because you, you have such a vast bio and an incredible story. I mentioned to you before we began that most of the people I interview have one, two, maybe three experiences throughout their lives, but you've had, what is it, 59 years of experience, Dave? Right. Off and on, they, they would visit me. Uh, the last time they visited me, it was two years ago. Well, it was actually last September. Uh, I can, I can be, I can, I'll tell you about the freezing events that I have. That's, that's new to ufology. I've never heard it talked about. But also, the, I want to talk about a little bit about the hum, the Taos hum that a lot of people have. It's that low 20 yeah. megahertz of, of sound that people aren't supposed to hear. But I, I've been hearing it ever since 2010. I believe ever since I started being really close to a, a few ETs, and I, I got it. I, I got it. So I'll get to that story when when I, I guess you want me to kind of warm up on the bio a little bit. More. Yeah, go back in time. Okay. Well, yeah, I graduated from high school uh, in in '67, so that makes me old, I guess. But uh, I I keep myself going mentally. I'm writing books now. I got my second book's going to be published before long. And the first book is out there now on Amazon, and that's They, What Do They Want? And that'll be about all the things that these ETs have harassed me over the years. But my first sighting was actually in 62. In I had a sighting when I was little. I, well, I was actually, let's say, 12. I was 13 at that time. I was 13 when I saw this 
this looked like a little barge and it had bright white lights on the front of it. And at the bottom, it had a blue hazy lighting coming over it. And I was in the backyard playing. It must have been around 8.15, 8.30. I was the last one out there messing around and playing. My other brothers and sisters went inside to watch TV. And I always liked the outdoors. And I saw this this craft come up overhead about 100 feet high. I remember looking at it, and I was really mesmerized by it. But I don't remember having the contact with this craft. But apparently afterwards, I got into uh, my bedroom in which we had 11 kids in the family. So we shared beds. So my brother, older brother and I shared a bed. And I remember being ending up in the bed and I was numb. I couldn't move. My legs were numb and something was standing next to me and I couldn't. And then I was really scared to say anything or do anything until this thing was gone. And then I, I felt that it was gone because I started getting you know, feelings back in my legs and stuff. And I turned to my brother. I said, did you see or hear anything? He goes, no, shut up, go to bed. You know, I got that quite a bit from, uh, I guess a couple of wives, sorry to say <laughs> a couple of several wives, but, uh, I, he, he told me that that night and, uh, I, I so I didn't want to say anything more. And the next day I just kind of, I told my mom that I saw something really weird and she goes, Oh, you're just imagination is going wild. And here she is. She's in my book. Also, I talk about her and she's had a history in it. And she, I was born with gray sideburns and she, she emphasized, she says, make sure you put that in the book because she says, I think that has something to do with your being attracted in a, a by the ETs. And this this come out of her mouth. She's 94. She's still alive. She, she We talk about it to this day. I just gave her a book signed uh, last week, and uh, she really enjoyed it. And I said, your name's in there, Mom. And I said, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> she, laughed. she says, well, it's all true. She said, I said, I know it is. But, but, but hold on, hold on, David. I remember when reading the book, I remember when one of your abductions, you came home late at night, and I guess you had lost an out one hour, and you got home. And she had locked the door because it was so late, and she had to open the door. Right. And she said something to you when she said, "Mom, but I, uh, I saw a UFO." Yeah, that was in that was in 1963. That was about a year after my first sighting. And my buddy and I, uh, he's he, we've been best friends. I just saw him last week at lunch, and we talk about this same story over and over. And it was in 1963. We were. At the bottom of his steps, he, him and his dad lived in a basement apartment, and we was at the bottom of the steps listening to the radio and drinking Pepsi-Cola out of glass bottles. And that's a, that's a, that dates me right there. But we smelled this funny smell. It, it smelled like sulfur or, or whatever. And then we saw some lights just above the tree line moving really slow, uh, two small bright lights. And then we said, okay, let's go up. He said, let's go up there and get the flashlight from my dad's truck. So we did, and we followed this thing up the road, and we it was going real slow. It was watching us as we were watching it. So we were moving real slow, and he flashed the flashlight at it, and he was saying, well, he thinks that they answered him back. But what I recall is it, the lights were hitting the tops of the tree uh, uh, limbs and leaves, and I, that would cut it in and out. The light would cut in and out because of the trees getting in the way, and that's what I noticed. But we it was moving all the way up. We went up to this empty lot. We stood there, and this thing was over my backyard, actually, and it it was a, an old saucer shape type type of uh, flying saucer, probably about 
I think it's uh, 30, 35 feet wide and about 15, 20 feet deep, high, and it had windows all the way around it, uh, little portals. I was looking at that. It was only about, I'd say, 75 feet off the ground. And we stood there and we pinched each other and we couldn't believe what we were seeing. And and he pinched me too hard and I said, ow, that hurt. So I remember that conversation, but I was looking at the portals, the windows. I wanted to see them. I saw shadows. My buddy said he heard a little humming, buzzing sound. I didn't pay any attention to that. Now, that's something I was more visual, locked onto the target. And I guess he was hearing a humming or buzzing sound. I didn't actually hear it. But we stood there. We don't know what happened after that. Uh, we remember coming. We remember being right back in the same place and standing in the exact same place we started off looking at this, this craft. And I saw it take off to the west, due west. We were looking at it from the southwest, actually. when you, you I went back some years later and kind of drew it all out to try to figure it all out from there. And it, it was coming. We saw it looking to the southwest, but it took off due west. So that means it moved 30 or 40 degrees without us seeing it. We would have, if it would have moved, we would have noticed that we would have said something to each other, but we did not see it move. And my buddy didn't see it, see it fly out. I did. It just zoomed right out in the into the clouds and it was gone. So then we said, well, okay, we're going to go home and tell our, our folks about this. So we both ran home. He said he went home, told his dad and he said, yes, son, you saw a flying saucer, go to bed. And then I got, I had to pound on the door because my mom had it locked. And then she, I, she opened the door and she said, you know how late it is? I said, no, not really, mom. I said, I saw a flying saucer. She said, get your butt in the house. I'll fly and saucer your butt. And, you know, so I said, okay. So I go into bed and the next day I was telling my friends the story and they laughed at me. And when your kids around 14 years old in junior high, you know, <laughs> they're going to laugh at you, oh, yeah. they're going to fun at you. So it's it's kind of you just stop talking about it. But my buddy and I always talked about it when we got th- together. And we'd always sit outside and look up and see if we could see another one. So we were always into it because you know seeing is believing, and I don't mind that coming from people. If people say I have to see one to believe it, then that's fine. But just don't discount them and say, hey, they don't exist, and you're crazy. You know that those are those are answers I don't really like. But just op- have an open mind and the consciousness part about it and just know that this universe is so huge and vast and there's life out there and they're finding out. NASA well, you know, the, 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 the saying, condemnation without investigation is the height of ignorance. Yeah, yeah. I, but uh, I, I don't get, you know, how we I, – I talked to you earlier before the show that I don't get how – they said the government is causing – a lot of disinformation and misinformation to block us from the truth. But I think there's, there's kind of infighting with the top ufologists and the investigators, the talking heads, as I, as I call them, they seem to be gatekeepers for people who experience things. I'm all for the experiencer and I want to listen to the stories. I want to, I want to see how it relates to how my story went. And a lot of them, believe it or not, I've interviewed a lot of these experiencers and they always tell me something that rings a bell to, to my experiences. And then I know for sure I said, okay, this guy, he's witnessed or this gal, they've witnessed something that I've witnessed and it's weird. So it's nice to hear people talking about this subject in order to put those pieces of the puzzle together for somebody else that, that might be, you know, scratching their head and say, what the heck just happened to me? You know, they, some people don't know 
of people don't even know they've been abducted. And I think that night in 1963, it was uh, early summer. We was out of school. And I think that night we we saw this thing about a little bit after 10, might have been 1030. We didn't get into the house. It must have been midnight because my mom don't usually lock up the house until about 11 o'clock. And then when she has all the kids and she knew I was with my friend, so she didn't, you know, uh, we didn't have cell phones back then, so she couldn't call me and chew me out. But uh, she knew it was late. I even asked her here lately, I said, do you really, do you remember the time, you know, before I wrote my book, I wanted to find out. She goes, no, but it was late. She said it was pretty late. I said, well, I don't remember, you know, that time. And my buddy doesn't remember that, uh, that hour and a half, what we were talking about. That's what's, what was missing actually about an hour and a half. But what in two weeks, like in journalism, when you investigate something, you wait for the other shoe to fall. Well, two weeks later, the other shoe did fall. It was, it come in a form of an implant. I told my buddy about this implant and he just went still. I said, I know we were on that craft together because I had a regress dream, but this implant was for real. I felt, you know, a nodule in my, in my, uh, uh, you know, I guess left testicle, I can say that. And I thought, what's going on here? And then I looked and there was a cut line. It was about an inch long and it looked like a laser cut. Now, back then I didn't know what it was, but it looked like kind of a laser cut. And I thought, okay, I'll try to push it back out, that cut, because that cut's not supposed to be there. So I did. It took me a couple minutes, and I kept forcing it out, and it popped out through that cut laser cut line. And uh, I'm calling it a laser cut now. I didn't know that back then. But I got it out. It looked like a Advil tablet, but it was kind of light in color, uh, kind of real light tan in color. And the longer I held it out, the darker it got. The oxygen got to it. I showed it to my mom, and she goes, where'd you get that? I said, Mom, that come out of my, my testicle. And she goes, that's an ingrown hair. I said, no, Mom. She looked at she what do you mean? I said, there was a hole. There was a cut. And not a hole, but it, it, I got it out, out of this cut that was about an, an inch long. And I said, I was able to get it back out. And then she looked at me and froze. And she didn't say nothing. Let me, just, just, let me said, just interject for a second. So as your mom is basically pretending to be a skeptic here, could it be that there's lineage, there's DNA lineage that these ETs are following and she knew all along? Yes. She knew about flying saucers. Uh, she used to tell us it was right after that. She used to be, she used to tell us that there's warnings on radio. Don't approach a flying saucer. Well, we did approach one, but she knew, but she didn't want to say anything to scare me. She didn't want to let me think that, okay, maybe they messed with me or they took me or whatever. She didn't want me to be afraid or scared because she's had, her family has seen a couple of UFOs and she's had some visitors uh, in her house, low, tall, dark, uh, slender uh, men, they call them whatever, but she's, she's had that. She's had them, you know, uh, roll her around in bed and grab her leg and, and things of that nature. And so, it does travel in the family. It, it traveled in ours. And my mom didn't want me to know everything about it because she didn't want to scare me. So that night, she was just actually putting on a show when she told me about she'd kick my flying saucer butt. Mm, right. And then the next day, you know, no, two weeks later, she told me, no, you know, just throw it away. She went quiet. But the other thing was I had a regressed dream. And it took a while for that regressed dream to come about. I don't know if uh, the, uh, the audience knows about regressed dreams or very loose. Oh, sure. 
they're, they're very lucid, vivid dreams in which you actually can relate to others in this dream. You can actually talk to them, touch them. And I had this, this vivid dream that we were, I know my buddy was with me in this craft. It was dark. It was kind of warm. And I was on a, on sitting on top of a, a, like a metallic table, shiny. And I couldn't put my shirt on. Actually, it was too small. It was my buddy's shirt. And he was in there. I, I felt that he was in there, but I couldn't see him. He was at another table. But I ended up having the right shirt, I guess, because he was smaller than me. And I was, I was always a chubby kid. Let's, let's admit it. But I, you know, I was a little bit bigger, so I couldn't put his shirt on. And I was frustrated. But apparently, they must have taken uh, his shirt, give it to me, and they re- reversed the shirts and got us dressed and put us back down like nothing happened. That was the regress dream I had. And I told my buddy that, and he says, I haven't had anything. I said, are you sure? He said, no, I haven't had a regress dream. And my older brother, who, who's a real strong believer in, in me because he's, been, he's witnessed a few things around me. So he told, he told Dave, uh, my buddy, he said, hey, you probably had th- something happen. You were abducted, and you, you don't remember it, or they might have erased you. And, and uh, my brother here, he probably remembers it, you know, tidbits of it. And sometimes, most of the time I do, there are some parts of it that they, they don't get. Uh, they they relieve or take your memory. I was going to say relieve your memory, but they they take your memory away from you back to a certain time, and they use light to do it because there's one in- incident that happened. You know, I, I talk about it in the book. It happened in Sedona where I actually saw how they erased uh, your memory. But that was the first go-around. Now, through those rest of the 60s and 70s, I was busy. I was in the military. I was playing music. I played guitar for a while and I played drums. I kept busy and I, I didn't do drugs as a musician, but I did drink. And I didn't, I wasn't proud of that, but I, I drank because we partied all the time when we played music and musicians know what I'm talking about. But then I, I guess I, in the eighties, I, I had uh, other jobs that took me other places. I've seen orbs during those times. I remember seeing lights in the sky, but I didn't think anything of it because when you see a, a UFO up close, like I did two of them in 62 and 63, orbs just don't excite you. You know, you have to see the craft itself. That's where I'm at with, with all these orbs and the things. I see orbs and videos on, on Facebook, and I say, okay, that's an orb. That's interesting, but uh, it's not as interesting as seeing one up close. And that's where, where uh, I find the real true facts are. You, you see what, what this thing is, how it's made. You see what it looks like. And there are no weld spots. There's no bolts, anything. It's all just totally smooth uh, craft that I've seen. But uh, those years were kind of slow. And then in 95. Hold on, hold on. I'd like to go in chronological order because you went to the Army Right. And you had a you held a top secret clearance, but you quit or you left the army, right? Yeah. Okay. That's that's the topic. I thought. Well, after you mentioned, it, I thought, okay, we'll just leave it there. But here, here's the explanation of that. When I went, when I left high school, I I tested very high on IQ. I don't like talking about it, but then when I went in the army, I took their test, and I qualified for anything I wanted. I, I made that such high scores. My brother tells me he thinks that ETs give me an intelligence boost. Maybe so. I don't know. But I got into top secret. I was the only high school level person 
in that class of 15, the rest of them had bachelor's and master's degrees in mathematics, and I was in this nuclear weapons training school. We had visits from the military intelligence once a week. We would go to this meeting room. Uh, it looked like a, a conference room where sometimes during the day an officer's uh, place where they had drinks, I guess, during the evening. But we sat there, and they would give us cigarettes and a soda, and they'd talk to us, and they'd ask us all kinds of crazy questions like, like, who won? You're from St. Louis, right? I said, yeah, St. Louis area. And they said, well, who won yesterday with the, the Cardinals? I said, the Cardinals won. And they said, oh, okay, good. And so they ask you questions like that. Then they ask you, they said, when you mail something home, do you tell your, your family what you're doing? I said, no. And I looked at the guy and I said, you open my mail. You, we cannot seal our mail. It has to go through you guys before it goes out. And he goes, yeah, you got a point there. I said, yeah, why, why ask me that question? So I was, I was only, I was just about ready to turn 20 at that time. And I was just too young for that kind of stuff. And I had an 89% average in the class and they wouldn't let me drop out after about eight weeks or nine weeks, they wouldn't let me drop out. So I went to the post chaplain and I went to him a couple of times and then he finally figured out he could get me out of there. But then I'd have to take another training, and I was out of my contract. And when you enlist and you go out of your contract, the Army can send you anywhere they want. They normally do anyway, so it doesn't matter. But I was out of my training contract, and, of course, I had a top-secret security clearance, and they didn't want to waste all that money. And I felt bad about them wasting all the money and doing that too, but I just didn't want to go to Sandia, New Mexico, and go underground and just disappear. So, <laughs> How are you not dishonorably discharged then? No, no, I wasn't dishonorably. I went, I went on in the service. I didn't quit the service. I, I quit my MOS. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, my schooling. I quit my schooling, and then they sent me to another class. It was a kind of like a clerk cat class to fill in. And then my brother. Uh, and you did not want to go to Sandia underground. Yeah, they, that's where we were next after Redstone Arsenal, Alabama, Huntsville. Uh, Why did you not want to go there? Did you know what was about to happen? No, I didn't know what was about to happen. It was just going to be really secluded, and we couldn't uh, talk to a lot of people. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't get out too much. Uh, we were we constrictive. Were, yeah, we were restricted. So for a person that's not even 20 yet, that was kind of too much. So yeah. the the chaplain got me out of it and got another class. But my older brother and I went into a buddy plan in the, in the Army. We went through basic together and spent a couple more weeks at Fort Leonard Wood uh, together. And I had to wait there another two or three months for my top secret uh, to come through. But uh, when I got out of that class, then they took the, this clerk cat class. My brother got orders for Vietnam. His wife just had a baby. And I said, I said, no, you're not going. And so I talk, talked to my captain and I give him my orders. And I said, I want orders for Vietnam. I said, my brother is not going to go. He's got a baby. I'm single. I said, so I want to go instead of him. See, brothers didn't have to serve in a combat zone together. So I blocked his orders with mine, and I went to Vietnam. And I, what I did, I ended up being a platoon sergeant, infantry, and actually was playing a role as a lieutenant in Vietnam. I had 42 guys I was in charge of, and we were an infantry uh, platoon. And I was just solely in charge of those guys, and we did our own thing. We uh, we had our assignments, what to do, where to where to you know, stay in the trenches or, or whatever. But that was a learning process for me, being a leader. And uh, it, it, it brought me up to being a man. And I didn't mind 
the Vietnam service afterwards. But what I did mind in which my one of my the book that I'm trying to publish now, not trying, it will be published soon, but senseless wars. And I thought Vietnam was a senseless war. I talked to a lot of people there, a lot of villagers. And I asked them, I said, do you does it matter to you? Who is your government? They said, no, we don't care if we're communist or Democrat. And I said, I thought so. And and I know our government knew that, but we were just, we were there for some reason for somebody to get rich. Uh, I'm not sure, but also in, in this book that's coming out, it talks about uh, General Gian. He said, he was the chief of staff in North Vietnam. He said that they were about ready to surrender in 1968 after a failed Tet. They thought they were going to really be victorious at Tet in 1968, but they lost big time. So they said, we can't beat them. We, we might as well just quit and we might as well, re, you know, just give up. And they said, no, the military intelligence guys told them, no, you're not. The American people don't want us in Vietnam. Our politicians are fighting back and forth each other. You got John Kerry, uh, Vietnam vets against the war. And they said, just hold on. The people will pull the Americans out. And they did. So and also they they were bombing the north. And uh, they were about ready to give up. And this uh, General Gian said, if, if it was just another two weeks of bombing, we, we were going to surrender. That was the next following year or whatever. Uh, but uh, <laughs> twice. I wouldn't even have to go to Vietnam in 69 if they would have surrendered after 68. So a lot of people say, well, you lost the war. I hate hearing that as a, as a veteran. I'm proud of being a soldier and I'm proud of our country. And I'm patriotic when it comes to that. And when they say you lost the war, no, we didn't. We lost the political war. That's all. That's that covers my book real quick. And now I'll get back on UFOs, I guess, Mel. Well, that's uh, fine. But you know, it was a, a war of attrition. Fifty-seven thousand lives. I think that was the number that they expected once. Once we reached that number approximately is when they were going to stop the war. But as you said, that war simply made the military-industrial complex, congressional complex rich. Right. M-I-C. You hit the secret word. Yeah. That's in my book. I cover some of that. And uh, oh, By the way, I added a G to it. Military-industrial congressional complex. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. The $450 billion goes to these uh, black operations, and yeah. there can't be any questions asked. They they. Congress cannot ask a question about where that money goes. It's probably a lot more now. That's the last I heard. But yeah, getting back to that, but I getting back to the UFO thing, I after the the top secret thing, I needed to explain that. I'm I'm, I'm glad you brought that back out. Uh, I know you went over it in your your opening, but uh, I'm glad you brought that back out because some people wonder, well, why did he get out of that top secret school and he it was high and elite? Well, I didn't like it. I was 20. I was cut. Yeah, I was, I was making a grade. I was cutting it, but I, I didn't like it. And I ended up being a combat leader and that they I actually when I was getting out of the service about two months before uh, it was I was in Fort Benning serving out my last 11 months after Vietnam. They they wanted to commission me as a lieutenant, uh, but I would have had to reenlist. And I said, well, I was I was doing a lieutenant's job in Vietnam anyway. I said, you're giving me the commission. I said, and now I'm going to get paid for it. But I said, I don't want it now. I don't want to go back to Vietnam. I, I'm done. And they said, oh, okay, well, you're going to turn down a commission. I said, yes. 
So I was going to get a field commission as a lieutenant from sergeant to lieutenant. So that was successful. I was, that was, uh, to me, that made me feel good that they appreciated what I've done. So I, I, I like, I, I like being, or I like serving my country like that, but finding out that Vietnam wasn't worth the effort and the lives that we lost. So that, that also bothered me also, but uh, no, uh, I didn't, I think after that, I, of course I, I was an electrician. I played music. I went to school at night. I was going to school part-time for through the seventies and parts of the eighties. I was going to school. Uh, I went to Chicago for a year and worked with a medical corporation there, uh, Phillips medical. I come back after a year because they wanted to move me all over the country. And I didn't like that. I was kind of picky. I had my, my direction was always changing and I always wanted to go for something that, that I was more happy with. And I wasn't happy with traveling. So I come back and then that's when I worked for the Red Cross and I managed the a, a business. It was a gasoline and, and store front business for a couple of years. And I was in the management, that, that sort of thing. But I, I was worked with the Red Cross in 89 and 90 I I enjoyed doing that work too. I worked with the Central American refugees. I was a I was kind of like a field disaster uh, manager uh, for the Red Cross. Uh, I enjoyed doing that. Uh, so it was something like serving. I, I was in the servitude type of thing back then, and then I started working at a refinery and I was making good money. I was still going to school part time. That was in '91 and '95. Uh, we're getting back to ETs now. In '95, I had this experience. It was about uh, 1 30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was asleep, and I saw this shadow come in. So, from '63 to '95, nothing happened, or did anything happen in Vietnam at all? Nothing happened in Vietnam except for a battle. Okay. Except for fights, yes. And me learning how to call in artillery when I was never trained. Uh, that was, that was a, uh, I think my angels were with me. Uh, I, there's been several times in my life I, I felt there is a presence that told me what to do and to be focused because sometimes the guys in like in Vietnam, this has something to do with maybe tying in with the, the ET thing that there's somebody always with you. I, some people call it an angel, of course, God, I believe in God highly, but they call it the source. The ETs do, but I believe there's something that's always with us. And when I come into really sticky messes in Vietnam in combat, I didn't know how to call in uh, artillery. The lieutenant ran. He actually ran. And I said, oh, my God. And he said, Emmons, you're in charge. And he just took off. And we were getting hit really bad. The, the whole uh, the headquarters, it was dust was swirling and everything. And I couldn't even hold the pencil, the grease pen on the, on the, the plastic see-through uh, map that we had. And I was drawing these coordinates, and then a colonel called me and says, uh, where's the lieutenant? I said, he ran, sir. He said, he ran. I said, yes. He said, I'll take care of him later. Uh, I never saw that lieutenant again, but he, he said, you know how to call in artillery? I said, no. I said, I said I, but I'll do my best, sir. I said, we're being hit pretty bad. The enemy's real close. He said, yeah, they are. And uh, I said, well, do this. Fire in this coordinate and uh, fire for effect. That means one round to see where it goes. So I'd take my Jeep driver. We'd go out and drive and look at where this round would hit. And then I'd call it in closer and closer. And I got it so close that I told my guys just to 
just to lay down low behind the side sandbags and just we're going to finish out this thing out because they're right close to us. We need this artillery. So I said, let them go. So they fired for about eight or nine minutes. I mean, it felt like the earth was going to was going to give away. But uh, it was an experience. And so but I felt like something was guiding me. I don't know what it was. It's there's it happened at the refinery too. We had a couple of real bad emergencies uh, on pressure and things of that nature and heat. Uh, we made the gasoline, the fluid unit. Then it was highly volatile, and I, I, I we had these these problems, and I stood there, and it's just like it happened in Vietnam. We were getting hit with with setting the back of a truck, and the guys all looked at me. I went quiet, and they said, "You're crazy. You're not saying nothing." I said, "Be quiet." So I I was thinking. And then I told them what we had to do, and we, we drove out of the, the missiles and the, the mortar rounds. But just like in, in the refinery, something was telling me what to do. I never knew how to do all these emergency things in the unit. Usually people just shut it down to be safe, but I kept it running. And I had a couple of seasoned guys. They were actually above me come in and looked at me, and they said, this unit should be down. And they looked like they had they had the fear in their face, like – what did you do? You know, so I, I think somebody is with me. I, I feel that way, Mel. And I feel that uh, some of the CT contact has given me guardians. And uh, well, there's a couple other things that's happened to, I, uh, I had a sniper miss me a couple of different times and I, I got low and uh, it was a good thing that the both times the sniper wasn't a very good shot or I had, like I said, I had somebody with me. Now, a lot of people might think, well, those are your guardian angels. Yeah, they might be, but we don't really know what they are. Uh, they're guiding you and steering you. And um, if you ever saw the movie, The Adjustment Bureau, where these these guys in these hats would lead people around, and they was leading this one person. He was a running. He was a senator, and he's he's going to be running for president. And they wanted to groom him, and he couldn't do certain things. So they they walked through walls. It was kind of like a dimensional thing. It was kind of like a godly thing too, and they were they were kind of guiding his direction. Uh, so that could be a possibility. But yeah, through all this time in the seventies and uh, actually the eighties, I just saw like uh, these orbs flying, and I didn't think nothing of it. But it was ninety five, Mel, when I first when I when when things started happening again. And I was in the bedroom, like I said, 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I thought it was my adopted daughter coming into our bedroom and the master uh, bathroom there to get some medication for her headaches. I, I, I hollered out her name three times. She didn't answer. I had my chin cupped in my, in my right hand. And then this dark shadow moved around the mirror and come around the side of my bed. And then I got put my chin in my left hand and I was looking right at this ugly thing. And it's in my book. It was. It's not like your gray alien that you see in the movies, real slick and and uh, kind of cute in a way. But some of them are. But this was really. I mean, his wrinkles. He was really wrinkled, and he had he had uh, he didn't have the black lenses on. He had eyes like ours, except there's probably double our size, and I could see the whites of his eyes, and but I didn't see all color. I just saw dark. Uh, you know center there in the I just couldn't see any color in his eyes but it was I could see the whites of his eyes but he was very uh wrinkled and and kind of ugly he's only about three and a half feet tall he's only about a foot or so so it's a he for some reason I thought it was a she 
she. Well, reading the book, for some reason, I don't know why I thought it was a she. So it was a he. I don't know. It, well, with aliens, you don't know. Hmm. They, they, yeah, they, they could be a he or a she. I, I couldn't say that. It, in the book, I don't think, I don't think I, I, I didn't say, I might've said he, but I said it as a, uh, but you don't really know if they're he or she aliens. Was it, the, was this the entity that said something about having children? No, no. This was the one that come by my bed and I looked at it and oh, I okay. had fear for about five or six seconds. And then I just passed out. I woke up about an hour later and I, I woke up my wife or ex-wife and I, she said, no, I didn't see or hear nothing. Go back to bed. I went in the bathroom and my eyes were just, my eyelids were just fluttering. I couldn't stop them. It was like a nervous tick. I, I splashed cold water in my face and about an hour or so I had to go to work anyway. So I went in the bedroom and I sat there and I said, wow, this is crazy. You know, this, this is crazy. This is bringing it all back from 1963. And I, I had that, you know, that, that looking at this ugly thing. And uh, I don't know what he did to me, but I think they did a bedside abduction. I, I refer to three different types of abductions. There's a bedside abduction in which they take DNA samples they read your your memory frequencies. They have this the frequency device that they can read your memory. They upload that from you. They take semen samples uh, for their hybrid program. So that's been that was done to me, and uh, they they've taken DNA samples. That's what they were doing bedside. That's what this thing did. Because I don't remember going anywhere after that. I just remember waking up an hour later in the bed. So I I wasn't taken. It was a it was a bedside uh, situation where the second type of abduction is is they they take your whole body into a craft that that's when your body goes into a craft or they get you while you're outside. But the third one uh, is something that I'm going through now and just happened to me last September 2nd. The third one is that they take your energy, your soul, your consciousness, and they must put it in an avatar or hologram, and then they take you to another dimension. And uh, that's in my book where I was frozen six times for, uh, since uh, 2016, once a year, almost on the exact same date, August 11th through the 14th, three times, twice in September 2nd or 4th, and then one time in January because they were here in my uh, condo, so they didn't have to do, uh, I, I guess, research on me at that time so it's that's that scares me because the august is coming up again and this will be the seventh time and i told my doctors about it and they're really really puzzled they said well we looked at your blood charts we looked at everything is pulling it up on the computer and they said were you just chilly i said no i was frozen i thought i was dead my arms were frozen i was shaking all over i said i was vibrating the bed so bad my wife didn't even wake up and they said she didn't wake up. I said no. The bed was as violently shaken from my from my shaking, and I got up out of bed. I went in and went to to urinate, and then I got back in the bed and covered up. And I was so weak, I just passed right out. I did not wake the wife up. I did not say anything. The wife didn't wake up, and that was strange. So I knew th these are strange incidents. And I told the doctor. They said, well, well, maybe you just got really cold one night. Uh, I said, this is August. I said, it was warm. I said, 70 degrees in the room. And I said, I even had blankets on. And I said, okay, tell me this. Why does it happen uh, during August uh, one time a year or September? 
just one time a year. And I said, the last one was September 2nd, doctor. I saw, I saw my doctor back in November and I told her this and she's a, a great doctor, but she says, I can't figure that out. And she looked at me kind of strange. She said, that, that is strange. She said, I, I can't, I can't tell you what it is. And then one doctor told me, he said, well, take your temperature when these things happen. I said, yeah, that's a good idea, but I don't think of that. My mind is blank. I'm kind of dumbed down, just like my wife is put to sleep, like they didn't want her to see what was going on. And I was dumbed down. And uh, so I didn't know anything else other other what to do. But that was uh, that's the freezing episodes. And those have been going on and it'll happen. I'm actually a kind of scared about this next one coming up probably in August. I told my wife, I said, you need to. So you think for sure that this will happen again? Yes, yes. It's happened six times in a row, and it'll happen again, yes. Will you be, this is kind of an unorthodox question to ask you, but how many times have this happened on the same date, or approximately? Okay, let me read them off to you. It happened August 13th, 2016, August 16th, 2017, And then, for some reason, they went to January 24th, 2019, because they skipped 2018. So then they come back August 10th, 2019, September 2nd, 2021. So that's uh, that's once a year, and it's all easily September or August. And like I said, they skipped 2018 for some reason, and they saw, they come here January 24th. I put those in ledgers, and I'm a journalist. I'm a paper junkie, so I, I put these these notes down, and I told the doctor that, that I took these notes with me and told her, and so it's strange. It's uh, it's it's something that's out of this world, I guess. But I think what they're doing is taking my my energy, my soul, my consciousness, and taking it to another dimension. Have you I had have... any communication with them during these events? No, nothing. Nothing. I, they, I don't even have, I haven't really had regressed dreams about these events. This, that's weird too. Sometimes after about maybe a few months, I'll start having regressed dreams about, about these types of things. But when you're taken to another dimension, they must have a really good way. They, they got your consciousness with them. They take it with them in a hologram. And this is, this is how I, I look at it. Some scientists may say it differently, but the way I feel, the way I look at it is, They're taking me to another dimension and my consciousness, my soul, and my, and, and my energy. And that's why I was so cold. I had, my energy was gone. I, I was just probably just barely alive. Dead. I didn't know it. Yeah. Yeah. So when they take your soul, okay, but the consciousness, what they're taking is a facsimile of yours. If it's almost like if you and I had a, a hard drive right here and we make a copy of that hard drive. The first hard drive is not the same. Well, it is, but it's not the original data. Right. So if they're taking your consciousness, is it you assume that it's because they probably are putting you in a different avatar that's vibrating at a frequency that it enables it to exist in that dimension? Right. I I feel I've I've had a lot of dreams about being on board ship and being in classrooms sitting at a table and then looking at symbols and numbers and things that I don't understand. I re- I've had a lot of dreams like that. It's like they're training me. Now this is going to sound crazy, but are they training me for my afterlife? Is this is what is this what is what's going on with all of us? We have a soul 
and then we go to an afterlife, another dimension. And if you believe in God, uh, you're going to, you're going to believe that way. And I do. And I think I've seen other dimensional places. I went to a dimensional place. I went to another planet, uh, one time. And when I was younger, this was after they first contacted me in the sixties when I had this dream. Uh, and I, I saw that dream again, but normally you only see, you're only regressed one time in a regressed dream and they don't, you don't get it twice normally. It doesn't happen twice. I don't know why that is either because, uh, but that regressed lucid dream, you remember every detail. There's nothing you, a normal dream, an average dream, you'll forget about it about 10 minutes after you wake up. But when you have these regressed lucid dreams, you don't even have to, I, I was looking at my notepad and I was going to write it down and I kind of laughed to myself. I said, oh no, I'll remember this. This is lodged. All these details are lodged in my in my brain and in my mind, and I'll I'll never forget them. Uh, when something like that happens, you never do. And I I have a memory that that goes back to these things, and I can see uh, most of my lucid dreams. And if you can pull out one factual point about a lucid dream, that means it's true. Uh, I've had several. Maybe I get time to talk about them. But but after that event, uh, I was. In 2000, it was, it was 1995, then about four years later, it was in the year 2000, I was at the uh, refinery, and I was the lead man, and I was walking around looking at things, inspecting machinery and everything. Uh, the job paid well, I had good benefits, so that's why I stayed put. Uh, I could have went into radio, but it didn't pay much. Uh, that's what I was trained for. So I went up on the on this deck. I was about 14, 15 decks high. That's about 140 feet. And I was looking to the east, and I was standing there on, on this uh, catwalk. And I saw this bright, shiny object coming towards me. And I wondered, well, what's that? It's actually flying over a part of the refinery, and that's against the law. Uh, EPA and the federal government has laws and regulations, FAA, about flying over refineries. Only an EPA licensed plane can fly over a refinery. And this wasn't licensed. It wasn't a plane even. When I saw it closer, it had a wingspan of about 15, 18 feet. It, it was solid. It was very shiny, silver looking, did not have any windows, portals, did not have any noise or sound. It was very quiet. It has had one vertical uh, fin on the back and no, no, no vertical fin on the back of it. Just one, one, uh, uh, one vertical fin. I, I'm getting horizontal mess up here, but no horizontal uh, wings on the back, and just the vertical. But it had the wingspan. It looked like what you would call a small jet. It, it was probably maybe 20 feet long. And it, I just, I was mesmerized by looking at. It. I called downstairs to the control room. I said, "Hey guys." come outside and look at this thing. And they said, there goes Dave with this UFO stuff again. And I said, Oh God. I so I hung up the phone. I said, forget it. So I watched this thing as it, it come by me. And I was only about, I guess it 50 feet from it when it turned and then it went due South real slow. And I thought it's not a glider. It's not propelled. It doesn't have a cockpit. Nobody's in it that I know of. And it just went due South real slow over some of the oil tanks that we had. And I, I was wondering, what the heck was that? But a night or two later, I had a very lucid dream. This thing planted some, I guess, 
they know time, they know future, apparently, because they were they injected into my mind and my memory. And I had this dream that I was at the refinery and I was walking around and all of a sudden it was quiet. The machinery makes a lot of noise. And then I went to the big blower room where it's, you had to wear earplugs and all this other And it was real quiet. And I thought, what's going on? I ran to the control room. All the lights were out on the, on the boards. Everything was shut down. And I thought, what is going on? And I stood there and then something come into my mind that told me the plant is going to close. And I thought, well, that's kind of ridiculous because they just put $5 million of repairs into our unit. And I told the guys the next day about that dream, and they said, oh, you're crazy. That's that that ET stuff, isn't it, Dave? I said, well, you might say that, you know, because after I saw that one thing, it gave me a little tidbit, a little gift of of a futuristic uh, memory. And I told them it's going to close in about, they said, when? I said, about three or four months. It'll be closed. And they said, you, you're crazy. Look at all the money they're doing. I said, maybe they're preparing to sell it. And I said, and maybe not. So what happened, I had back surgery at that time. So right after that, about a month later, I had back surgery. So I was off, off of work for about two months. And then I was able to come back. But then they closed the plant. And I thought, oh, my God, the plant is closing. So they closed it. And I guess all these guys were just... I guess none of them thought about it because I wasn't there to remind them, but I did. I was able to tell a few of them. I said, remember when I told you the plant was going to close and you called me stupid? I said, well, it did close. So they give me some memory or some good tidbits, I call them, uh, sometimes to let you know what's happening in the future. Then uh, I had a dream, a lucid dream of being on another planet. Uh, this is probably some kind of a dimensional wall that I went through. They took me through, and I must have been younger. It was after that that first craft, about a couple of several years later. I ended up in this little apartment a building. It was, was kind of like just boards or wood, and it just it wasn't very fancy. And I was playing around with some other younger kids. That's why I thought it happened to me in my youth. And I was playing on the drums, and I noticed the drums looked different. The mechanics of the drums, the snare holder only had two prongs instead of three prongs like we have on our snare drums as a, as a stand. And then these kids wanted to go outside, and I went with them outside. And then there was a lumber yard like And I looked up around, and there was trees. It was cool. Kind of remind you of Seattle, kind of like the uh, environment. And I looked to the left of me, and I saw two suns. One sun was bigger than the other. There was two suns uh, over the horizon. And then I saw this river, and I saw the trees, and I saw these kids playing. And I saw this young girl, must have only been about 10, 11 years old. And I sat by her, and I looked at her, and I said, you believe in God? And I felt that was a very strange question in a dream to ask somebody. And she looked at me, and she looked over my head. And I thought, well, what is she looking at? And I looked around, and I saw this, this guy in a black suit with a black hat, like a, like, like a men in black. And he motioned for me, and I went over to him, and he said, now, I want you to walk down this, this boardwalk. He said, I want you to walk and, and then go back. I said, go back? He said, yes, this walk. So I started walking. But before then, I picked up a couple of little toys. They looked like they were kind of really hard plastic or maybe even uh, precious stone, as we would call it. And they looked like two little animals. And I stuck them in my pocket, and I thought, okay, this is going to be proof that I've been on another planet. So I walked back on this uh, this walkway. 
I ended up in my bed. I woke up real quick and I said, wow. And I reached in my pockets. I had pockets in, in my in my sleeping drawers, I call them. And I had pockets and I, I said, oh, no, I, I did not get those toys. And so that's how lucid of a dream it was. And I saw it during that time. Also, I saw some men coming up out of a uh, up from a stairwell. They were underground and they all, they all had this black stuff on them like tar. And they looked like they were mining for some kind of a black tar material. Uh, I don't know what it was, but they looked over at me as I was walking up and, and out. So I was there somehow or another because they looked at me and they motioned for me. And I, I had a conversation with a young girl. And they say when you have a dream about being on a planet with two sons, uh, that that's a real dimensional dream that you, you went to that planet and they showed you that planet. So those were some of the highlights of my dreams. And I had uh, another dream, Mel, that uh, I think they gifted me. I, I, I call these gifted dreams because they're showing me things in my memory and I, I regress them in a, a lucid dream. I had this dream I was sitting in an old church-like situation with real stone blocks like they had 2,000 years ago in the Jerusalem. And it was, a, it was a sand floor. And around the sand floor was was kind of like uh, blocks that they put around about three feet out from the wall and they made a walkway around it. And in the corner... Uh, I was there getting hooks. They were brass hooks, actually big ones. I looked this up on the internet, and that's exactly what they looked like 2,000 years ago. They used big brass-like hooks, and I was putting them in a bag. And then there was kids playing on my shoulders. They were kind of tapping me on the shoulders and playing and laughing. And then there was a, a there was a a person standing in the corner that had a robe on, and he had he had a hood on his robe. And then they I saw I saw another one come in and take his place. And he said, I said, who are you? And he said, telepathically, he told me, he said, I'm your new preacher or new pastor or whatever. I think he meant what I got gathered from me, new minister or whatever. Uh, and I said, oh, really? And I said, where's Jack? That was my brother, Jack. He said, they went fishing with with uh, Paul. And I don't say his last name, but I, I, never, I haven't seen Paul, my friend from school, for several years. So... He told me, he says, clean the church up, take care of the little kids. And he and then he looked at me and he like he's reading my mind. He said, No, you don't have to go to church to go to heaven. And I thought, okay, he's kind of cutting down the church a little bit. So, but that was a very lucid dream, and I remember every bit of it. But what really makes it factual, Mel, again, like the closing of the plant and this thing here come about this dream. What makes it factual, the other shoe that fell, was that I talked to a friend. I was at a workout center, and I talked to a friend. I said, what about Paul? You seen him? He said, you haven't heard about Paul? I said, no. I, he said, he's got cancer in three places. He's in really bad shape. I said, really? I said, I just had a dream that somebody that looked like Jesus or, or a Christ-like figure told me that, that my brother Jack went fishing with Paul. And I said, it's Paul. I don't want to say the last name, but... Uh, he said, where'd you find this out, Dave? I said, in a dream. And he backs away and goes, oh, wow. He said, he said, I don't want to mess with you. And I said, no. I said, I, I see these things sometimes. And, and I, I called up Paul the next day, asking him how he was doing. And, I, and he said, you know, it's funny you called. He said, I skipped out on my chemotherapy today. And I said, Paul, you shouldn't. I told him about my dream. I said, you believe in God? He said, yes, I do. And I said, 
stay with your chemo treatments. I said, don't skip them. I said, I said, I had a dream about you and this, this Christ-like figure telling me, you know, that talk to you. And he said, wow. He said, that's coincidence. He said, it was just today I was, I skipped it. And he said, you're calling me on this day. He said, that that's weird. He said, I said, yeah, it is. I said, but please do me a favor and stay with your treatments. But he ended up living maybe a couple more years and he was gone. But, uh, those are could, some could it treatment. be maybe because of the chemo, since chemo is actually mustard gas? But that's yeah. a different topic, Dave. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, you know, I, yeah, they, they, a lot of people actually can survive cancer with, uh, sometimes with just one operation. And then they, after an operation, they give you chemo and radiation. And I think the radiation killed my sister. Uh, well, we could do we could do an entire show about this here, but you know, since we're not medical doctors, yeah. we cannot give advice. But I can tell you that this whole standard of care of surgery, radiation, or chemo is really right. what kills people. And uh, yeah. there's plenty of things that people can use. And go to sanitasradio.com, folks, if you want the answer. And this is why that show is no longer running. But uh, as you you are believing God, and God has given us all the analogs in nature to take care of every single ailment. But of course, the and we talk about the, the MIC, military industrial complex, but there's the the P complex. I'm not going to name that name because just by main making that make saying that name, I get censored. But keep going with with the interaction. First of all, these dreams. Were you ever, ever hypnotically regressed by one of these, Dr. J.V. Jacobs or some of the others about your story? I've, I've spoken with Dr. David Jacobs back in 2011. He was at an Arkansas UFO convention. I went there with my friends all the time. And uh, Dave Marler, who's a, a, a real good investigator with the Triangle aircraft uh, or, or, you know, craft, whatever. But uh, I went there. And I talked to Dr. David Jacobs, and I told him about my abduction experience. And I said I was electrocuted almost. I said I, I was just – I felt all this energy coming from my, my right side off, the side off the side of the bed. And it was early in the afternoon. The sun was shining. I could see the door. I just laid to stretch my back out. And all of a sudden, I was hit with this, this snapping and popping. It's like taking about three or four boxes of crackers and just crunching them. That's how loud it sounded. It hit my shoulder, and I froze. And, and I said, I saw these different things. I'll get back to that. But Dr. David Jacobs, he told me, he says, he laughs at me. I said, you don't believe me? He said, no, it's not that I don't believe you. He said, when you have that sensation of being electrocuted, he said, they're bringing you back. I said, bringing me back? I said, I fought them off one time. He said, no, <laughs> they were bringing you back. So he, he knew about that abduction process. And I was very, I was very excited to find that information out, but I, I thought they were taking me instead of, but they apparently they were bringing me back. So you don't know if you're coming or going with these ETs. Interesting. The and the fact that he said yeah. that is because he probably has regressed so many people. They've, uh, right. Dr. Yeah. Jacobs has, has been on this program many times. Um, let's continue with others. And first of all, you tell in your book that you're not writing your story to be believed Anybody can believe you or not, or disbelieve you. Yeah, you either know or don't know, but you have volunteered to go through a lie detector test if anybody yeah. wonders, right? Right. I, I do. And I, I, my wife, who is a, 
she's an ac- academic. Uh, she's a master's degree, and she's and she uh, she's a fundamentalist when it comes to religion, and she doesn't like the idea of ETs, but she knows. We've been married now, going on ten years. She knows about the ETs. She actually told me that she was grabbed and touched, and she had a couple of scrapes on her that uh, you know we couldn't identify. Even the doctor, skin doctor, couldn't identify. It looked like a razor scrape, like a DNA sample or whatever. But they were checking her out, and uh, and I told her, I'm sorry. I said, you're you're with me. You're probably going to get some of this. And then she would hear noises at night. Or she'd feel something beside. She said something was standing beside the bed, and and she she would wake me up and she said your buddies are here, so that's how she believes. She knows she has seen things with me that are weird, and we've seen a couple of UFOs together. Uh, she's we've seen them pretty close. Let, let me ask uh, you about this. This is interesting. I don't mean to continue interjecting, but it's important. No, it, I don't mean to I, pry about these beliefs. But when you say fundamentalist, are you talking about a Christian? Yes. Okay. Yes, My question is, I have seen so many Christian fundamentalists, and I, I have a lot of listeners who are Christian, but sometimes I get these fundamentalists who write to me or or post negative comments on on uh, out there on social media or YouTube because of this topic. And the common denominator is always, stop interviewing people about this topic. It's EOFOs and ETs. They're all demons. Yeah, they're de- devils, yeah. They're the devil. Why is it? I mean, what information do they have to come to that assumption? Well, I've done a lot of – I'm going to do another book. It's going to be about angels, and other ones might be the sequel to this uh, other book that I have out. Uh, they uh, – the publisher is talking about having a sequel to that, and we're going to see how well this book sells, and then we'll go into that later on. But I'm going to do a book about angels. Uh I can tell people that are, I've actually talked to people in churches and my wife, you know, she wants me to go to church with her. And I said, well, I go, I like the music because I'm a musician and, but I'm not really into, you know, the church thing. I'm more of a spiritualist because the, this thing that I've been going through all my life, I feel blessed seeing the other side, seeing dimensions and knowing, knowing for sure with my own eyes and my own body that I know for sure that we are going somewhere else after we die. I don't have to have a church or somebody tell me that. And also God is in you and he's around you and you have to, you know, you have to go your own path. You have to make the right decisions in your life. You have to be a good, kind person. And I've tried to do that. I've tried to serve mankind at times when I could, but that's what you have to do. And but if I tell some of these these guys that go to church, they look at me kind of weird, and they say I don't believe in that stuff, and they walk away from me. Yeah, they they think you're you're poisoned, but it's not true. If you look in biblical history, and this is where I I have a couple. Of, I'm compiling my my information now that I'm going to research and then compare it with how, what I've seen and done. But you look at the ancient uh, Old Testament. And, and you look at these characters and they're like Noah. He was six feet, five, six, and he was very tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, light complexion. And they said he would light up a room when he walked in. Now, that's the E.T. blood that's in him. I'm sorry to say, people, but that's E.T. all along the bloodline. King Solomon, King David, uh, all, you know, it's Abraham. They all were, I guess, guided by this ET thing. 
And, you know, I, with Christians, I don't like talking about Christ, but Christ to me was a teacher and he was trying to tell people back then they couldn't understand him. He had, he had, to, he had to speak in parables and they couldn't understand him because they didn't have, they didn't know how to write or read. So he tried to explain to them what was going to happen to us when we die and we are going somewhere else. Now that I believe he's, he was a teacher. I think him and uh, Mary Magdalene were married or, or, you know, they were a thing together. And I think Judah knew who he was because Judah was involved probably in the same thing. Uh, they had watchers. They talk about watchers that would warn Jesus when the Romans were coming near a house where he was at or a building that he was at. And then he would, he would leave because they were coming to arrest him. So all this fits together in Judah you know, like Christ asked his disciples that, uh, Peter, who do you think I am? And Peter says, you know, you're Lord, the God, you know, you're, you're God. And then he asked a couple others questions. Then he got to Judah. Judah looked at him and they said, he said, I know who you are. And he didn't say nothing else. That was in the Bible. It says, I know who you are. So there, there had to been, and then also you, you get this shroud in which Christ was, I guess some kind of energy lifted him out of there and then he went on and then he was still on earth and talked to a few people and Mary Magdalene saw him and his mother Mary saw him. And so they had these angels that appeared at the, at the, I guess his burial site and they removed the big stone. So you have to go back and look at it uh, with both eyes with, this is what they call consciousness, taking in everything around you, knowing what's going on. And just like in battle, you, you have to be rotating like a, like a radar unit to be, be sure that you're covered all the, way, all the way around. Consciousness is similar to that. I mentioned that in the book that the people, like soldiers, have your, your six, uh, they have your nine, they, you know, they have your high noon, that's straight up, and your six is in back. And it's the same thing with consciousness. You have to have this I mean, you have to be able to rotate in a complete circle with consciousness and think outside of the box and know that we've been lied to for thousands of years. I don't want to get into all that because that's a whole new subject. No, hold it right there. That's a great segue. The fact that his hyphen story and we have been probably actually the majority of the history we have been inculcated, indoctrinated in school has been a lie, but we'll, we can discuss that another time. But we have to take a one and only break. But let me just say one thing, and this might offend might offend some of my Christian brothers and sisters, but I've had some alternative historians who have written to me in private to let me know. This is their version, based on their research, that the person, Jesus Christ, did not die after all. And he actually married Mary Magdalene, and the blood and the lineage from whenever this really happened, say 2,000 years ago, continues. And they're hiding somewhere, I believe, in France, the lineage. Don't know if this is true, but just giving you other sites of history out there. Because, by the way, Christianity is a religion. But Jesus Christ did not create that religion. He just want, he came here to spread the word. Somebody else created that religion. Same thing with the some of the others. And how many do we have now? Thousands, right? Right. Well, it was about 325 AD when uh, King Constantine Correct. Of, uh, of Rome, he developed the Catholic Church. And then they Council of put, Nicaea. Yeah. They only put certain books in the Bible. And, and every book that they put in there 
was a positive reflection on a church that they want to build upon. So that's what they they did. A lot of the other books they wanted to keep out because it was actually anti-church. Yeah, where's the Book of Enoch? And then King James came and translated uh, it. So who knows what was taken out? But how can people buy the book, Dave? My my book, uh, they, what are they? It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. And cuckoo, cocoa, something like that. <laughs> I'm not yeah, sure, but those are the two biggest uh, uh, places to, to get it. And Amazon, you get it quicker, and it's it's on the the Amazon charts. Actually, it it's moved up and then back a little bit. It's just you know, it just jumps around. But uh, my uh, uh, publisher told me said said it's doing very well for a first time art you know author. And I said, well, great, that's good. So hopefully the people will read the book, and I. I think they'll they'll learn some things in consciousness and about the other side. And I don't have to sit there in church and think about is is there life after death? I know there is. I've been there. I've I didn't have a uh, I did have a near death experience one time in '83 uh, in operation, and uh, but I also felt like I was on clouds and I didn't see nothing other than that. I just felt very good, like I was floating. And the doctors told me I almost died after the surgery. They give me morphine and I'm allergic to it. But that was the only time a near-death experience. But what I'm talking about is I went to different dimensions. These ETs. But hold it, hold it, because we have to break. We have to break. So you want to make sure where to buy the book. When we come back, I really want to get an answer. What do they really want? And you have 59 years of experience. Hopefully, you have had that question answered. My special guest today is Dave Evans. Much more when we return. This is Mel Hostelrick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Pure Organic Sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, Proceed to the members section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.